In this week's five things you need to know, Cincinnati's second largest law firm adds three new offices through a California merger. A fast-growing tech firm solidifies its place in Cincinnati. Club Essential continues its hot acquisition streak, and a Cincinnati beer is named one of the 20 best for 2022. In the interview segment, we have Jake Warm, one of the owners of bourbon brand OKI, but that's just a side hustle. His Warm Construction also built the Bengals' new indoor practice field. Welcome to Above the Fold. The days are getting shorter and the nights are getting colder, but we're like Huey Lewis and we're going to keep bringing you the news. If you're a frequent reader of Five Things columns every morning, you've probably seen me make that joke before, but I'm a firm believer in conservation and that includes recycling. Welcome to Above the Fold, a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier. I'm your host, Andy Brownfield, joined by co-host, Courier Editor Rob Dalmeyer. How are you doing, Rob? Courier? Did you just say Business Courier? Did we get? Did I get this right? You know what? After you uh, beating me down for weeks about this, I'm deciding to try it out for size, and I don't know if I like how it tastes. Okay, well, but it sounds great. <laughs> well, we'll let the, the proper decide. saying it properly sounds great. Well. Our lists, uh, you know, they're one of the most important things we do here at the Business Courier. Each week, we round up the 25 largest companies in a given industry, like commercial real estate firms or accounting firms, and uh, collect them all on our massive book of lists, which is coming out soon here. I've had a salesman refer to the book of lists as his Bible because it just has so much business intelligence in it. Yeah, it's a, we've been doing uh, the book for as long as I've been here, 25 years. Uh, well, we've been doing the book since the paper was started in 84. And as the world progresses into the digital realm uh, more and more every year, this book, however, uh, keeps its shelf life. And it's still big and robust. And advertisers want to be in it. And people want to be on those lists. And that really hasn't changed. And I think it's because it's got a 12-month shelf life. Yeah, and, and our list of the largest law firms is one that sees constant movement, but the two at the top are pretty consistent. Dinsborn Scholl's been number one for as long as I can remember, and Frostbound Todd has been right behind them with, uh, give or take, 70 fewer local attorneys. But Frost is getting even bigger. Just yesterday, the downtown law firm announced a merger with California-based Alvarado Smith. And when this merger goes through, which will happen in January 1 next year, the combined firm will go under the Frost-Brown-Todd name, and they'll have three new offices in Los Angeles, Orange County, and San Francisco. So when law firms, they don't buy one another, we talk about this all the time, obviously because you cover law firms, uh, they always say they merge, and it's because they do. The partners buy in, and the partners all get a an equal stake in the new firm. So it's not like uh, it's not like the old attorneys uh, with Alvarado Smith are, are going anywhere. But Frost Brown Todd is the new firm's name. And so if this is Frost moving into California, which is a big, big deal for them. Houston is the farthest west they've been to this point. So adding 23 lawyers and three offices in California represents a, a, a beachhead out there that I think is really interesting. Yeah, it's it's definitely the biggest reach for Frost so far. I mean, they pretty much, outside of that Houston office you mentioned, stayed within about a four-hour drive of Cincinnati. But California is a big business state. I mean, it's about 15% of the country's GDP, and if, if California were its own country, its economy would be the fourth largest in the world. So the addition of Alvarado Smith brings... Frost, as you said, a, a, a big beachhead in that state, and three new offices, uh, taking its total headcount to 575 attorneys. Yeah, it's a it's a big number, and like you said, um, our 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 biggest several law firms, Taft 
it's the Tennessee and Hollister, or Taft as they're known now. Um, they just merged with a, a big Detroit firm, so they under Taft, and so that really has has grown Taft's footprint. And Dinsmore's been buying up or merging with, excuse me, merging with firms. I mean, you did a big cover story on this uh, recently, or last year, I believe it was, or two years ago, just about just how active Dinsmore has been, the, our, our largest law firm at continuing to grow and merge with these smaller firms. So it's it's kind of cool that our biggest firms are on the on the side of you know gobbling up smaller ones and you know using their nameplate and using Cincinnati as the as the headquarters. Yeah, one of the, the most fun aspects of newspaper journalism is headline writing, and the headline for that one was Dinsmore's Domination. Yeah, yeah, you got to love that. So remember when Amazon launched a national search for its HQ2? I do. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was like Star Search or American Idol with mm-hmm. all these cities lining up to convince Amazon to locate there, only without the popularity contest or the, the phone-in voting. Right. It was only four years ago, but Amazon ultimately picked New York City and Northern Virginia as two co-locations for its new Amazon campuses. And I wonder how those uh, those cities are taking the news this week of 10,000 layoffs at Facebook, or Amazon. 11,000 layoffs at Facebook was uh, earlier this month. And Twitter was a couple days before that. So yeah, it's, it's a text base is tough right now. Yeah. But, you know, around the same time that Amazon was, was doing this big national HQ2 search, I remember a Washington, D.C. startup called Amphi playing off that news with its own HQ2 announcement, but picking Cincinnati for its co-headquarters. It ties, it ties in with Amazon. Uh, Amphi is an Amazon-as-a-service provider that helps other companies market themselves and their products in the e-commerce giant. And our Liz Engel reported this week that Cincinnati is HQ2 no longer for Amphi. With co-founder Ethan McAfee stepping down as CEO, Cincinnati is firmly the company's headquarters. Its local headcount has always surpassed, well not always, but recently largely surpassed the number of employees working out of D.C. And it's, it's been pretty significant for Amify for some time. Yeah, Amify is interesting. Uh, I'm sure companies still exist in this space, but if you remember years ago, there was a, a big flood of businesses starting to help you sell your stuff on eBay. Yeah, And most of that died out, and most of the people that sell a lot on eBay decided it'd be better for them to do it themselves. But there's still some some companies exist that'll help you. But this is different because, you know, Amazon is Amazon. You know, eBay is a, eBay is a completely different thing. And, Amazon, you know, helping a company, I mean, if you've bought anything on Amazon, which I'm assuming everybody listening to this has bought at least 4,000 things on Amazon, you know that it's not always through Amazon. And that's what this company is trying to do, trying to help businesses sell their stuff on Amazon. Yeah. If you've bought anything recently on Amazon, as if I didn't just 10 minutes ago <laughs> buy a pair of uh, control stick extenders for my PlayStation 5, because I think that extra six millimeters is going to help me with my Call of Duty. <laughs> no, marketing on Amazon's no easy task. Uh, Aziz Ansari had this great bit in one of his recent specials where he talks about how we all want the best of whatever we're buying. Nobody's just going on Amazon looking for a toothbrush. Everyone wants the best toothbrush. And you'd think it would be as easy as putting a product on Amazon and listing it for sale, but... Are people really going to find your toothbrush among the thousands of other brushes on there? My wife Hannah used to work for an ad agency, and one of her jobs there was to write SEO copy for Amazon listings. And it's all just super contrived, very strictly prescribed language like ADA accepted, Bluetooth powered, electric toothbrush for teeth whitening and gum health, and wireless charging, sonic motor, and brush heads. Yeah, I, 
It is. I, I, there, it, when I'm on Amazon now trying to buy something, the, the choices are staggering, and a lot of them are sponsored. You know, some of them are. You're not 100% sure if this what's going on with pay to play or, or whatever. But but a company like Amify is really out there to try to 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 ease the way to make sure that your company's is products can stand out in this the world's largest marketplace. Yeah, it's because Amazon uses artificial intelligence to rank the products on its platform because there are thousands of, of toothbrushes, yeah. toothbrushes alone on there. So yeah. this is something I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit here. Uh, we do a lot of thinking about search engine optimization when it comes to our stories. And we one do. thing that I learned through one of the trainings we got is that places like Google, places like Amazon, they look for your intention. When you're searching for something, they want to know what your intention is. So if you're searching for a toothbrush and you want the best toothbrush for gum health, Amazon, you have to have that in your Amazon listing, or you're just not going to be placed in front of somebody who searches best toothbrushes for gum health right. or best toothbrushes for teeth whitening. Right. That's so something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's, why, that's where they come in. It'll be really interesting to see how they grow. So speaking of tech firms, Club Essential is one of those early tech firms from the 90s that survived the dot-com bust and has gone on to become one of our region's largest private companies. What they do seems intuitive now in 2022, but back when Club Essential was founded in 1998, it was pretty novel to allow golfers to book a tee time in real time online. And they've since grown to digitizing and offering services for just every, just about every part of the golf experience in leagues, private clubs, and public clubs. Club Essential, at the end of last week, announced that it had bought Edpack Network, a Canadian firm that provides emergency and health form automation for recreational groups. That doesn't sound like the sexiest aspect of Club Essential's business, but when you've got groups like the YMCA or local parks organizations, they're going to want to know who to contact when little Timmy falls down a well and Lassie isn't there to get help. And I think I just lost any Gen Z listeners <laughs> to the podcast. No, I... You're right when you said a minute ago that, uh, you know, it seems intuitive now, but Club Essentials, you know, one of their core businesses is just really brilliant. It's taking, it's taking private clubs and country clubs and, and these places that have a lot of very wealthy people as members, but oftentimes had really backward web presences, you know, some partially because there was just people just don't want that information out there, but partially just because they're not set up to do that. But if you, you know, what Club Essential found out is if you can sign some of these clubs and golf courses and spas and, and country clubs um, and completely overhaul how they do their business online as far as, you know, bookings and um, just every possible detail that these clubs need, these country clubs have a lot of money. And um, it was a great idea. It was, an, it was kind of idea when I first heard about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, I uh, I am not a member at any golf clubs. Not me neither. Uh, my my parents made me not made me. They encouraged me to attend multiple different sports camps and, and, and summer activities. And I, I attended golf camp I think twice. Um, it's it, I will say it's a lot of fun. The driving range and, and hitting balls and the different clubs and I was never any good at it. But I have to imagine that if you're running one of these. Uh, golf clubs, your priority is making sure that the greens are great, the experience is seamless, the food is good, and that your members are happy. And I'm, I'm sure you know, hiring a team of engineers to build out your website and handle e-commerce for you isn't really on that list of priorities. Right. And, and this is the fourth 
acquisition Club Essentials had just in 2022. And EPACT is interesting. It's a it's a Canadian company, and they provide emergency health form automation for recreation organizations. So there is a tie-in, but it does kind of expand what Club Essential can do. So it'll be interesting to see how they fold them in. Right. It just makes it makes Club Essential kind of a one-stop shop for yeah. everything. They can handle your concessions vending at your club. They can handle booking tea times, and now they can handle your emergency contact forms. Yep. And they have a lot of uh, venture capital backing. Yes. Uh, gosh, I... I can't remember the exact number, but Club Essential was backed by private equity firm Battery Ventures back in 2016, and since that time, they have just snapped up company after company. Yep. So I used to live in Walnut Hills, back at a time when many of our listeners might have thought that the neighborhood was a little scary. Uh, back then, I paid around $725 a month in rent for 850 square feet of apartment with two bedrooms. I don't think you could find that kind of space for that kind of price anywhere in Cincinnati today. No. I think... Uh, I- you're absolutely right that uh, rents everywhere are way higher than that, regardless of where you want to move. And so it's interesting. You, you did you did used to live in Walnut Hills. And uh, this apartment complex you're going to talk about is, is also right next to Gomez Salsa, which is a reason to live in Walnut Hills all by itself. Yeah. Yeah, Walnut Hills has done a lot of growing since I used to live there. Uh, back then, you had a few chain restaurants like Taco Casa and McDonald's, and then you had the supremely excellent brew house to go to. And today, Walnut Hills is home to places like Fireside Pizza, Tiki Tiki Bang Bang, Just Q and Barbecue, Esoteric Brewing, like you mentioned, Gomez Salsa, and Decibel fried, Korean Fried Chicken. And, and Taste of Belgium has its central commissary kitchen in the neighborhood. And one of the apartment developments that helped spur an influx of new residents into the neighborhood, the Post, right next to Fireside Pizza, it's got a new owner. The apartments were bought by a Texas firm, which isn't disclosing what they paid for it. Yeah, it's um, Walnut Hills is so close to so to so much in this city that it it always it always felt to me, at least, as somebody who covers business, as something that was just waiting to happen. The housing stock, the apartment stock, there is is good stuff. It's just that the it, it had become a pretty blighted area in some ways that there just wasn't a lot of love paid to, to Wanted Hills, but it's it's such an important part of, of town. It's it's not really surprising that people want to invest there. You're five minutes from downtown, you're three minutes from the freeway, you're 71, and you can pretty much get wherever you need to get pretty instantly. Yeah, speaking of old cover stories, I wrote one many years ago called if uh, not if but when about just how Walnut Hills was really on the verge of tipping and that's that's kind of happened since then yeah absolutely so Walnut Hills uh, because of its proximity to downtown Cincinnati was once known as Cincinnati's second downtown and I think a lot of people who are familiar with the neighborhood would know the Paramount building that's on the corner there of uh, Gilbert and East McMillan and that too had been blighted for many years until it was redeveloped as Paramount Square and the reason it was known as Peebles Corner back on the day is because old man Peebles used to run a grocery store there, and he would bribe the streetcar operators with boxes of cigars to announce the stop as Peebles Corner. I did not know that. Well, I, I love trivia. This is our, only our, our sixth podcast, and I'm hoping that uh, readers or sorry, listeners aren't already getting sick of my personal anecdotes or waxing nostalgic before getting onto the news. But, Rob, were you ever a fan of sour beers? You know, I don't drink uh, these days, uh, so I can tell you that they were just becoming big the last time I did, and I, I really didn't get into them. They just, the vinegar part just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. 
Well, when I was attending Ohio University, uh, craft beer was just starting its boom. And during my junior year, when I turned 21, I thought beers like Rolling Rock or Killian's Irish Red were quote-unquote good beers. Right. Uh, but just up the street from my apartment, we had Jackie O's, which I think has now grown to become one of the largest craft breweries in Ohio. It is. And they had a special beer of the week on tap each week, and one of those was a sour beer, which was brewed with sweet cherries and then aged over tart cherries. And I remember drinking that beer, and the experience was just revelatory. I, I just didn't know you could make beer like that. And, and yeah, uh, sour beers are super controversial. If you like them, you really like them. But if you don't like them, you really don't like them. And I'm, I'm in the former camp. Uh, Northside's Urban Artifact is entirely devoted to tart and sour beers, and I remember being super excited when it opened back in 2015. I was living in Northside at the time, and I could just walk to the brewery. Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine has named one of Urban Artifact beers called Teak, a tropical American fruit tart, which was my nickname in high school, one of its 20 best beers of 2022. Urban Artifact was the only brewery in the region to have a beer named on that list. It's, um... It's really interesting that these beers are really high alcohol beers, aren't they? Or at least, at least uh, some of these sour beers are. A lot of them can be. Urban Artifact was known for its astronaut food beer because I, I remember when I grew up in um, the Union Terminal gift shop, they would have astronaut food, astronaut ice cream. It was all just freeze dried. So what Urban Artifact did was they they freeze dried just tons of fruit and they packed it into a beer that I think was probably had more alcohol content than wine yeah i mean and it's not cheap i mean i think their beers are going for about 14 dollars uh for a six pack um but uh and i'm reading here from i'm reading here from your story so i'm stealing your thunder (laughs) but uh craft beer and brewing called urban artifact masters of modern american fruit beer i mean if i worked at urban artifact i'd be pretty happy about that yeah, a lot of breweries will have kind of your standard. They'll have a couple IPAs, they'll have a couple pale ales, maybe a pilsner and a lager, a dark beer like a porter or a stout. But Urban Artifact, they picked their lane and they really stuck with it and they became masters of it. Yeah, they're, I mean, this craft beer and brewing magazine gave that teak brand you were talking about a 99 out of 100. That's, yeah, that's, that's strong. pretty impressive. It's strong. All right. This week on the podcast, we've got Jake Warm of Warm Construction, a century-old family-owned construction firm that recently completed the Bengals' new indoor practice facility. Managing editor Tom Demeropoulos pinch hit his guest host for this interview, which seemed appropriate because he was our commercial real estate reporter for his promotion. But Jake's not only known for construction. He's also co-owner of OKI, a bourbon brand that was first sold by new Riff owner Ken Lewis while his own whiskey was aging for four years. Ken contracted with another distillery to produce the bourbon, but then retired that brand when New Riff started serving its own whiskey in 2018. Jake teamed up with Chad Brizendine, who he knew from their previous partnership on the George Remus bourbon brand to revive OKI. Here's Jake Warm on Above the Fold. So, um, your, your family got the history in the distilling industry, maybe not so much from the liquid side but uh it's so that you guys had, had built a couple distilleries for for seagrams yeah uh yeah definitely from the construction side um we built a lot of the um warehouses and some of the distillery uh right after prohibition for uh, for seagrams so you can kind of call it the family business in a way sure yeah i, I suppose if, if you wanted to stretch a little bit <laughs> <laughs> well i mean what, what made you and chad want to uh, get into oki 
So Chad was one of the three founders of George Remus Bourbon, and I was their first and largest investor. Um, and then when we sold George Remus to MGP, Chad and I instantly sort of said, we want to do something again one day. It took us a couple years to figure out what that, what that was one day. We were in conversations for about a year, thinking about what, what we could possibly do in the whiskey business. And that's when I met the awesome folks at New Riff, and we started talking to them about doing a construction project for their new barrel storage facility. And we approached them about the idea of buying OKI from them. So did at, at the time, did they have any plans to do anything with OKI, or were they just going to retire the brand? Yeah, they were just going to retire the brand, and that was always their plan as far as I understand. Once the new Riff product was four years old and ready to be sold, they, they had no interest in, in continuing the OKI brand. So are you a whiskey guy yourself? I am. Yeah? How do, how do you drink it? Mostly neat, summer months sometimes with an ice cube, and some old fashions as my cocktail to go. Have you had the old fashioned at the uh, the uh, bar at Palm Court? Uh, I have not. No, they mix everything into the ice. So the the um, simple syrup and the vermouth. So then, as the ice and it's like a big old ice ball, as it melts, it just kind of slowly changes the the nature of the the bourbon. I uh, should definitely go check that out then. <laughs> yeah. Plus, it's gorgeous in there when you get to go have a drink. It's just a great spot for a yeah after it's, work. It's, Pretty singular in Cincinnati. Yes, I'm relatively familiar with the spot. I uh, just <laughs> haven't had the old-fashioned. So what did you want to invest in Remus? What was Chad's pitch to you? So actually, I did not know Chad when I invested. I knew one of the other three founders, and it was an interesting pitch. It was um, very much under-promise, over-deliver. We don't really know exactly what we're doing quite yet, but we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. Hmm. And um, somehow that worked on me. Maybe that wasn't, isn't so good. But we had some fun doing it, and, and it ended up being a successful venture in the end. And clearly something uh, that, that experience you weren't ready to let go of. No, not, not at all. I, I've always just had a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit and wanted to do something um, outside of my core of what I do in terms of construction and real estate and really like consumer product space and really like uh, have a hobby and passion for bourbon and wanted to do something that that I enjoy just as a hobby. Yeah, now speaking of your, your background in real estate, how do you go from getting a master's degree in, in, in sports management to, uh, to construction? I know it is a family business. Yeah, so um, I at one point wanted to be a sports agent. I'm not really sure if that was a a good idea or not, but uh, maybe the, the Jerry Maguire movie contributed to that. <laughs> and my love of sports, generally speaking. And then as I got into it and, and worked for a few different agencies in Chicago, it, I just realized it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And so moved back here, went into the family business, and pretty quickly learned that I, I really liked it, and uh, over time learned that I was pretty good at it. So I uh, really enjoy working with my father, and, and that's something special that you know I, I cherish a lot that I don't think a lot of people get the opportunity to do. And means a lot to me. Yeah, I, I want to jump into that in a second, but I've had like two jobs in my life, Kroger Bagger and journalist. And it was pretty clear to me that Kroger Bagger was kind of not my bag. I mean, I don't know what it was, if it was the uh, waking up at 
5 a.m. on summer summer mornings, slamming a Monster Energy drink and two donuts, and then mopping the uh, cart corral, or if it was cleaning the bathrooms, that convinced me that this was not my long-term future. But you know, after getting that degree in, in sports management and then working in the field, you know, what was it about you that about it that was just like, nah, not for me? Um, there, there wasn't a lot of camaraderie. The the places I was working certainly weren't trying to help me further my career. They were um, very cutthroat industry and um, borderline unethical, and uh, at least some of my experiences and, and people I worked with, and, and, and that just didn't sit well with me. So then going into the family business, construction can be somewhat cutthroat, very competitive, but I'm a competitive person, so I, I don't mind that a ton. And then one of the big intrigues to bourbon is it, it's competitive, but it, everybody is really trying to help everybody else. And, and it's, it's something that I've never seen in any other industry that I've invested in or, or seen from the outside looking in. Um, as you can imagine, we build for a lot of different companies, so we get to somewhat get a glimpse into their operation. And uh, bourbon is just it's a different industry. Everybody wants to see their competitors be successful, which I find really, really cool. It's kind of hard to have a bad time when you're sipping on a good bourbon. That also doesn't hurt Andy. (laughs) You know, it's interesting you say that because the only other industry where I've really heard people say the same thing is the craft beer industry, especially during some of the worst parts of the recession and even in the the infancy of the industry. If... um, you know, if a smaller brewery was having a hard time sourcing hops and they couldn't find the right kind, they'd ask you know, Christian Moraline, and Moraline would be like, yeah, sure, we've got extra Cascade. Uh, here you go. Yeah, um, and again, I, I see it mainly from the construction perspective, but when we uh, started doing some stuff for New Riff, I saw them talking to other distilleries on best practices and, and how they've built some of their barrel storage facilities. They've referred us to... Uh, Augusta Distillery, who we're about to build their distillery in Augusta, Kentucky, and the amount of people that have helped them along the way that I've just heard from from talking to them is, it, it's just, it, it's it's fascinating and it's, it's really cool to see. So um, talk me a bit through how OKI's business model works. I mean, when most people and I, forgive me if this isn't an accurate analogy, uh, but I recently wrote about Wenzel Whiskey opening in the Pickle Building in Covington, and they call themselves a, what's that word I'm, I'm looking for? It's like a blender. Yeah, that's essentially, they had like a fancy word for it. Uh, it started with an R, but that's not what you guys do. You source directly, do, do, do you send the mash bills to the distilleries? or? So we source... Um... Our primary sourcing is uh, MGP's two most famous mash bills. They're 36% high rye bourbon and they're 95.5 rye whiskey. Uh, And we primarily do single barrels of that, although uh, we recently launched our first blend that was a blend of their five most famous mash bills. And uh, it was primarily eight to 10 years with a 0.2% three-year-old bourbon in it. And... That's pretty much our our uh, business model. We were going to be an only single barrel uh, company, and then we sampled some blends that MGP sent to us, and we fell in love with the product, so we pivoted. I, I believe we'll do a lot more 
fun, interesting things. Got a few things that we're working on that not quite ready to, to share yet, but sure. uh, so uh, rectifier is the fancy bourbon word we were looking right. for. Yeah, apparently. Was Mr. A, Whitlow likes fancy words over there. <laughs> Wenzel whiskey. Yeah, uh, apparently, and I, I just learned this apparently is a pretty big thing during Prohibition, like custom bourbon. And I like took my dad for my Christmas gift to him. He's also a big bourbon guy, and I took him to Brain Brew. But I think what Wenzel's going to be doing is a bit, bit different than that. Yeah, Wenzel is a, is a really cool experience. I'm a part of a group called Whiskey and Wishes. It's a grant-giving uh, group, uh, just bourbon drinkers trying to do some good things in our community. And we did the, we were the first group to go to Wenzel. And it was, it was a lot of fun. You, you get four different samples and you mix different amounts and they give you a measuring uh, glass and it's, uh, you can mix them for a long, long time. And uh, they, they do get better as you keep going, I'm pretty sure. Um, and and it, was, it was a really, really cool experience. I, I highly recommend it for different groups and, and things like that. So with your, your blended whiskey, most of those being between 8 and 10 years old, I mean, what do you find is kind of, at least for your palate, I, I'm sure there's robust debate about this, but what's kind of the sweet spot in terms of aging bourbon? I, I think the 8 to 10-year-old is is the sweet spot. I, I think much older, it gets a little too oaky for me, mm-hmm. and, and much younger, it's, it's a little too young and, and not quite ready. Uh, our single barrels have been five to six years old, and, and I think those are, are really good. Below four years old, I think, is, is a little young. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've written about this in five things before, but I was first introduced to Pappy in, um, gosh, it was... 2011 in Montgomery, Alabama, and this was, I think, before the whole big Pappy craze. I'm sure it was well-known among enthusiasts, but at the time, I was just a 24-year-old uh, <laughs> journalist, didn't know anybody in town, had just gone through a breakup, and so I was you know, spending a lot of time at Pine Bar down there in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, the the bartender said, you're a bourbon guy, right? So uh, yeah, I think you'll like this. It's called Pappy Van Winkle. They age it for 23 years. And he's like, it's going to be $40 for a glass. And I was living in a $300 a month efficiency apartment. So yeah, why not $40 a glass? Uh, and he asked me once he poured me the, the glass neat. He said, do you want to take a picture of the bottle? I was like, why would I want to take a picture of the bottle? And now we're just like... <laughs> People charging $90 for a pour, uh, like a one-ounce pour of Pappy 23. I'm like, yeah, I probably should have taken a picture with the bottle. Not sure you can find it for 90 Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous uh, just how insane the bourbon market has gotten. It, it is. Um, and and it, it seems to be still only going up from, from what everything that industry sources have, have sort of relayed, uh, especially on the, the higher end side of things. It more barrels have been laid down in Kentucky than ever before, year over year. So it, it seems to be continuing to gain in popularity. I was going to ask, do you see this boom ever kind of slowing? Because we've written locally here about the projects for expansion, and our paper in Louisville has written about just the barrel houses these places are building are massive, billions of dollars. Logic would tell you at some point it has to. Um, that's just typically how these things go. But 
there, there's nothing, no indicators that we have seen that, that say that it's inevitable. So if you guys are, are forecasting out demand, I mean, since you're not aging it yourselves, it's probably a little bit easier. But if you're sourcing from MGP and they have these barrels that have been aging for eight to 10 years, there's got to be kind of, you know, a roof on, on supply. There is. It's getting harder and harder to get supply. And it's, we've navigated it very well with our relationship with uh, MGP. So we're, we're very fortunate to have that, that good relationship with them. So I think t- Tom is definitely more familiar with your career from the construction side, but I have to imagine it's it's got to be pretty cool seeing things like the the Bengals practice field and that that bubble go up and be like, "Yep, I did that. That was me." That that one it's it's again marrying passion to to what I do and, and hobby and me and my family have been Bengals fans as long as I can remember and it's yes it it's a really really fun project to work on. They're great to work with. And uh, we're really excited that we're going to be done ahead of schedule, Andy. So that's, uh, that's exciting for us. Can you walk us through a little bit how your company established that relationship with the Bengals and how it's grown? Sure. Uh, I think it was 2014. We were invited to bid on the player weight room and player cafeteria. I think it was us and six other bidders total. And it was a, a private bid. And we won the business, and I'm assuming we did something well to, to impress them, as I think we've done pretty much all the construction projects at the stadium since then. Hmm. Um, we've done redone the concessions. We've done stuff in media rooms. Uh, we did the conference room where you see all the players signing their, their contracts, the Paul Brown conference room. And they've just... they've. They're an incredible uh, family, and their management and everybody that we deal with uh, is, is just really good to work with um, and, and a lot of fun. We, we like tackling fun, unique projects, and the practice facility certainly fits that as well. And then, so I mean, it must have, I don't know, I feel like everybody in Cincinnati feels some kind of tie or connection to the Bengals, so... Seeing them go all the way to the Super Bowl earlier this year was, I don't know, just something that tied the city together. But it must have had special significance having such a close relationship with the team. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. Um, I, I would say it, it was special. Just I, I've been a fan again my whole life, and it was it was fun to be at all the games, went to the playoff game. That was that was an amazing time spent with family and friends. And then me and some of my family members and friends went out to the Super Bowl and um, came up a little short, but it was it was all in all an awesome experience to be able to share with family and friends. And hopefully we can we can do it again soon. Here's open. Absolutely. And your family has a history, too, of, of supporting the Bengals of uh, I remember seeing a photo of was it 37 East Seventh Street. Yep. Yeah, we uh, when my father built that in the late 80s, uh, they had a banner that uh, hung from the unfinished building as they were building it that said "Warm Brothers" and the fans say "Who Day," and so I replicated that banner for the practice facility to to pay homage to my father and my uncle. That's awesome. Yeah, um, you're. Family has been building in Cincinnati for a crazy long time. 
Um, what are some of the most significant projects that you think, as you're driving around the city, kind of catch your eye and, and you think would stand out to people? Hmm. Um, I mean, we, we've, like you said, Andy, built a lot in, in four generations. Seventh uh, and Walnut, the, the building that Tom mentioned, was, is, a, is a pretty cool one. Uh, we totally renovated the Carew Tower in the early 90s uh, and restored it uh, as it was sort of falling apart back then. We developed Central Park in Norwood, about over a million square feet in the mid-90s. The indoor practice facility is probably the, the coolest one, one of the coolest ones I have done. We did the 80 acres uh, 70K prototype in Hamilton, uh, did a few projects for them, but the 70K in particular is one of the most fascinating projects we've done as a company. Building a marijuana cultivation and processing facility in Dayton, that one's really fun and different. Not a lot of people have obviously built those as they haven't been legal until recently. Um, so we're, we like taking on challenging, fun new projects and it, it's a lot of fun to see where, they, where they're going. That seems to be a really nice niche for Warm Brothers is that kind of mid-sized project, you're not chasing like the multi hundred million dollar hospital project, but these in-between size yeah, scale we, projects. Yeah, we love five to $20 million projects. Um, we're actively looking at some that are 50, 60 million, 70 million even, but those, those obviously take a lot longer to come to fruition and have a lot of complexity to them. Uh, but no, yeah, for the most part, Tom, you're accurate, but we are looking at some bigger projects. Okay. And, you know, um, selfishly, I got to ask, I mean, last time I talked to you and Chad, you guys were talking about expanding distribution of OKI bourbon to Ohio this year. Can you uh, give me a timeline on that? Sure. We are, it's, it's a little bit delayed. We'll probably be sometime next year uh, with the reserve batch one that sort of took on a life of its own and, and sort of delayed some of those plans, as well as another fun project uh, that we're releasing November, December, we're doing a Repeal Day Trilogy, which is 33 single barrels uh, with three different acts. So Act 1 will be barrels 1 to 11, Act 2 will be 12 to 22, and Act 3 will be 23 to 33. And they'll be released in subsequent weeks on a Sealbox website exclusively. So we've sort of been focused on a few other things that we had in the works already, and, and it's delayed Ohio and Indiana. But as an Ohio guy and a Cincinnati guy, we, we will be in Ohio here shortly, Andy. That sounds like you're going to get all, all three of those letters to go, the K and the I. We're, we're, that seems to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so now uh, a bourbon release in three acts, is there, is there a significance to that um, the, the barrel order and this, those three acts? Not necessarily. Um, we've been asked by a lot of folks to be able to make single barrels more readily available as we do them with groups or retailers. They, they've been selling out in five to ten minutes. Um, so we wanted to do some general single barrels that uh, were, were almost more Chad and Jake releases and um, we're doing that through Sealbox who's been a great e-commerce partner and they ship to over 30 states so it allows uh, more people to be able to access our single barrels. They do ship to Ohio, Andy, so. Well, I know what I'm doing after this. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I, we 
met up for drinks the other day, and you, you said something that was pretty interesting to me, is that you and Chad have kind of grown OKI in addition to your normal day jobs, and you guys have, have kind of grown it pretty rapidly. Yeah, we, uh, maybe not on purpose, but we'll do about $4 million in retail sales this year. Um, so that's probably far exceeded what we set out to do, and, and a lot of that is due to our uh, reserve batch one blend. But yeah, it's, it's very much a, a side thing for us, and, and my, my main focus is the commercial construction and real estate business, and Chad's main focus is uh, Buff City Soap. And so how, how, how many barrels does that represent? I mean, what's your stock looking like? We recently signed a contract to have hundreds of barrels acquired over the next couple of years. We did about 80 single barrel releases this past year, and the blend is a total of 45,000 bottles uh, were bottled. But that's... Um, not the equivalent in, in barrels, and it's a blend and, and whatnot, so a little bit different. Still, it's just that they feel like staggering numbers to me. Us too at times, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, is this going to get to the point where you guys are going to have to either have someone take a step back from their, their day job to kind of oversee this or bring on additional help? We'll see. We, we've sort of been figuring it out as we go, and, and uh, I guess stay tuned on that. All right. And then just one parting question. What I want to hopefully just pick your brain here, you know, for my own benefit, and maybe those of us uh, who are listening who are also whiskey lovers, what are some some good, generally available, non-allocated bottles that people should keep their eye out for on shelves? Like stuff that, it's not like Bland's where you got to show up on Tuesday when they do the delivery to get a bottle. Ooh, that's a, that's a good question, Andy. Um, I would say my go-tos are New Riff single barrels. Good um, stuff. I particularly like the rye, uh, but the bourbon is great as well. Um, a little bit more specialty out of New Riff, the 100% malted rye and the Balboa. Um, those are a little bit more allocated, but not quite what you were talking about with Blanton's and, and lining up on a Tuesday. Bardstown Bourbon Company is doing some cool different things. Their Fusion Series and some of their other unique uh, products are, are pretty pretty cool and, and pretty good. And then... Uh, I'd say anything MGP, high rye bourbon, or the 95.5 rye mash bills are, are certainly my go-to. Excellent. Good stuff. Well, Jake, hey, thanks for coming out and talking with us today. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Andy. Appreciate it. Above the Fold is a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier, hosted by me, Andy Brownfield, and Rob Dahlmeyer. The podcast is produced and edited by me, and our theme music was written by Dylan McCarthy. Come back next week for another edition of Above the Fold.